So who measures what and why there? Again, it's sort of the state and the federal government encouraging measurement of every kid every year, right? Why? Why do we do that, right? We already have NAEP, as you suggested, that can measure state educational progress every other year. Why do we have to measure every kid every year? Welcome to Education Rx. The education system in the U.S. is sick, and we all need to find ways to heal it. I'm Holly Bronson. I'm Shannon Donaway. Together, we have almost 50 years of experience working as professionals in a school setting. We may not have all the answers, but we're looking for people who have a piece of the solution puzzle. This is Education Rx. Okay, today we have a really great interview for you guys. We are talking to Dr. Andrew Ho, who is from Harvard's Graduate School of Education. He's a psychometrician, which he will explain later. Yes, not a psychomagician. Yes. (laughs) That was great. (laughs) But he is working to improve the use of standardized testing, making it bring some value to our community and our education system. Absolutely. And I think one of the things that we want listeners to know is why we're doing this episode. We want to make sure that we really point out to listeners the reason behind us pushing really hard to explore out-of-the-box thinking for how we're going to adjust our teaching and education here in the United States because of where we're at. And he's going to make that really clear with the information he shares. He makes a point about how maybe as an individual, you're not seeing these big learning gaps, but they exist and we really need to look at that. And teachers who, well, you said this best, teachers who have a wide variety of students in their classroom can see the kids who are really struggling versus the kids who are kind of consistent. And we need to really focus on where those gaps are if we're going to make good changes. Yeah. And it's the teachers I feel like that are panicking. And if you're not seeing that in your home, maybe you're not realizing what the the effect is. Right. Why the panic is happening. Why the panic is happening in schools. This is dry information. And I have to say, he made it interesting and brought it home for me in a new way. I loved it. That was a really great interview. It was. Let's listen. All right. So we are here today talking to Dr. Andrew Ho. Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, introduce yourself, tell us what your passion is and why you're here today. Great. Happy to do that. My name is Andrew Ho. I am a professor at Harvard's Graduate School of Education, and I am what some people call a psychometrician. And a psychometrician often gets mistranscribed by these auto transcriptions as a psychomagician, which I find very <laughs> amusing. But like what that. a psychometrician is, because very few people know what it is, so what a psychometrician knows is how to measure. That's the metric part. Um, psychological, and in my case, um, educational constructs. Um, so I, in short, do work with educational tests, and I try to improve the design and use of educational tests. And as I often tell my students and members of the general public, sometimes improving the use of educational tests means using tests less. So I'm sure we're going to have time to talk about that today. Awesome. Well, I found you because of 
Shannon sent me a link to the NAEP scores that came out in October of 2022. And I kind of went down a rabbit hole and ended up finding an article from the Harvard Gazette that you were talking about some of the NAEP scores for this year. And that's part of why we came here today to talk to you is because it's significant. So can you tell us a little bit about standardized testing in our country? Like, where did that even come from? Yeah, so there's a a lot to unpack with standardized testing in this country. What is it and what is it for? Uh, I often try to start discussions about standardized testing by talking about what I call the the three W's. Um, What are the three W's? So who is measuring what and why? (laughs) So who, who is measuring what? And why? And so you mentioned an educational test, which I actually think very, very few people have heard of. And it's called NAEP. And NAEP stands for the National Assessment of Educational Progress. So it's N-A-E-P, not the nape of your neck, but N-A-E-P, <laughs> the National Assessment of Educational Progress. And my colleague likes to call it the most important test you've never heard of, right? And so again, <laughs> what does it do? Or, or to go back to the three W's, who is measuring what and why? So we call it the nation's report card. And every other year or so, the federal government it measures education academic achievement in states and large districts throughout the country. And they aggregate, they compile all these results. By the way, not everyone takes the test, right? Only a few people sampled take the test. It's kind of like a survey, right? It's not a census, but a survey. So only a few people take it. But from this, we can infer just the way a poll infers where people stand, even though you only have to measure 2,000 people to get a sense of where the country stands. Similarly, we measure uh, many tens of thousands of kids, still a large number, to infer where kids stand in states and districts and the country as a whole. Now, why, right? Who's measuring what and why? We measure math and reading and some other subjects, but math and reading are the two primary subjects. And why, why? We're trying to understand whether there has been educational progress on a large scale, right? On a state and national scale. And you might imagine that that's a pretty important thing for us to know as a country, right? Uh, Interestingly, of course, we're not reporting any single student scores, nor are we even reporting any single school's scores. We're reporting state and district and national progress. So we're trying to understand how far we've come in two or five or 10 or 30 years. And this nation support card has been going on for, for actually many 50 years or so, but much more in a much more detailed granular level for the past 20 or 30 years or so. So that is one answer to the question, who's measuring what and why the federal government, right. As a, as a part of, you know, understanding where our citizen citizenry stands, right. Is measuring math and reading primarily, but also other subjects for the purpose purpose of uh, understanding how far we've come, how much progress we've made as a country in terms of educational opportunity broadly conceived, right? Not just schools, but out of school opportunities too. And so that's one answer to the question of, you know, what do standardized tests do? There are many others, so we can get into yeah. it. Let me pause here and see if you have any questions. That's about NAEP, right? There well, are obviously and with NAEP, many other with NAEP, it's tests. specific grade levels, right? You, that's you right. mentioned the, the topics, the reading, the math, and the science, but explain the grade levels. 
Yeah, so NAEP, um, again, it's it's meant to be a survey. It's meant to be a light touch. And I'm sure we're going to talk soon about other standardized tests, which don't have so light a touch. Right? <laughs> but 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 NAEP measures um, academic opportunities in grades four and grades eight. And there's sort of a twin uh, test, an alternate, a different test that NAEP also administers that measures ages, not grades. So nine-year-olds, 13-year-olds, and 17-year-olds. So it's grades four, eight, and 12, and then nine-year-olds, 13-year-olds, and 17-year-olds. And those obviously overlap, but we're trying to basically get elementary school, middle school, and high school. Perfect. And in the past, there's been a little bit of a history where we kind of went up a little and then we had some really steady progress in the 2000s, right? Yeah. So one way to sort of tell the story of educational progress, again, the name of the assessment is a national assessment of educational progress. So let's talk a little bit about progress. There's obviously a number of different ways to cut the data, but I think the simplest general description is there was actually substantial educational progress in reading and math grades four and eight in the 90s. There was slight progress in the early aughts and then towards the late aughts and the the 2010s, there has been sort of a stagnation, right? If you look at the average scores, so you can you, you don't see much progress. So in general, again, and it differs by grade and by subject, but broadly speaking, there was fairly substantial progress, then slight progress, and then stagnation decade by decade over the last three decades. Now, that last period of relative stagnation that I described is actually masking a very important pattern that we could also talk more about, which is increasing educational inequality, right? So which is to say, if you look at relatively high scoring kids, they're actually on average performing a little bit better from, from year to year. If you're looking at relatively low scoring students, they're actually performing a little bit worse. So that average sort of stagnation kind of masks increasing educational inequality that many educational researchers, as well as people on the ground and people who are practitioners have observed informally as well. NAEP gives us the evidence to appreciate this at a large scale. And we just had scores that came out and we didn't test for a little bit, like with COVID and stuff, we, yes. it wasn't possible. That's right. In 2000, that so the, that was the year that some of these tests were meant to be administered. And actually there was one administration of NAEP that happened to be rolling out in January, February, March, April of 2000. And actually this one administration, they had they measured nine-year-olds throughout the country. They measured the 13-year-olds throughout the country and they could not measure the 17-year-olds because of course we know what happened in March of 2000. So- 2000 um, actually, or 2020? Sorry, it's March of March of 2020. Thank you very okay, much. I, I thought that's what you meant. So <laughs> too many, I just wanted to too many decades <laughs> that, I'm, that I'm juggling at once. Right. Yeah, so, so uh, in- Early 2000, right? This long-term trend, uh, which we call it the long-term trend for the for the nation's report card, um, was was intending to measure nine-year-olds, thirteen-year-olds, and seventeen-year-olds, and had just finished nine-year-olds and thirteen-year-olds, but could not measure seventeen-year-olds. Um, and so then, what the governing board that I used to be on, and some of my colleagues are still on for the for the nation's report card for NAEP, decided to go back, right, two years later in early 2022, and get this uh, effect, right, of what the pandemic might have done to academic and educational learning opportunities in the country. They came out with the, uh, this test that was reported, administered in, in early 2022, and was then reported in around September and October of 2020, 2022, just last year. And 
the way that I describe the results are in the context of those previous decades that I mentioned, right? So if you look at the slight progress from the, the late 90s through the early aughts, all of that progress has now been effectively erased in the sense that students now are performing the same, at the same, relatively same average scores that they had uh, in the late 90s. So that progress we had made on average, we have now gone back to that former baseline. In addition, that inequality that I had described as worsening through the 2010s has worsened even more substantially through the pandemic. So um, we have lost a lot of progress and we have observed an increase, a substantial increase in educational inequality as a result of the, pan of the pandemic. Wow. Wow, that's and, really scary. <laughs> yeah. And one of the things I read was that a drop in points by two points is considered significant, statistically significant, a two-point drop. Tell us what some of the drops were. Yeah. Yes. One of the one of the great strengths of psychometricians is our ability to communicate effectively. No, I'm I'm kidding. So that's definitely that's definitely not the case, right? So and I actually think it's worth thinking about how we communicate these large scale educational results because you know, Shannon, you were saying that's a lot. And generally, when I talk about this to colleagues outside of my field, they're like, is that a lot? So, so what they're trying to do is sort of contextual. Like, what does it mean that we have lost a few points? What does it mean in terms of like us as a society and what, th what therefore do we need to do about it? These are certainly what I would describe as historic and generational losses. And yet, if you look at like a difference of two to nine points, depending on sort of whether you're at the top of the distribution or the bottom of the distribution, it doesn't maybe feel like that much, nor I think if you talk to people on the street, do they feel like their kids, and I'll speak you know, in the first person here, my kids necessarily have lost that much learning. So that's, I think there's a sort of urgency gap, if you will, between what we're seeing as educational researchers and what the public I think is perceiving that I feel both sides of. So to give you a sense of this, right, we talked about NAEP as being a test for nine-year-olds and 13-year-olds and 17-year-olds. So I have, I had, I have an 11-year-old and a nine-year-old. So I have one person, one one kid who was nine in 2020 and another a, a kid who was nine in 2022. So I have like this exact experience. It's like, and 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 so I have the data that says on average, right, they've lost between two and nine months of learning, between wow. two and nine months of learning on average, right? If, if speaking about the country as a whole. Sure. And yet, like, it's not necessarily something I can perceive in them. And I wonder if like, that's part of this urgency gap that we're feeling where a lot of us in educational research are like, don't we appreciate the data that these are historic generational losses that we must respond to as a society, right? With funding and support and, and you know, energy and commitment. <laughs> And the fact that many parents are like, I don't see the urgency. There are a lot of other things we need to be worried about. Um, maybe the fact that my daughter can't answer three to 10 multiple choice questions the same way that they used that they would have had there been no pandemic doesn't seem that urgent to me. And so there's like a few reasons, I think, I'd love to hear what you think about this. There are a few reasons why this might be true. The first is that we're communicating it as a couple of points and not like a matter of decades, right? Nor okay. a matter of many months of learning, right? Mm -hmm. uh, another is that we might be, I don't know, maybe just not that 
convinced about the importance of math and reading, which I worry to <laughs> to speculate about. But perhaps that's perhaps like you know we have some people out there saying, oh, you know, who needs algebra anyways, right? And never never mind the fact that I mean you know and and reading. I think I hope we can all agree on. But maybe yeah. there are some people saying like, do we really need to be able to add or subtract? And I would argue, yes, absolutely. But <laughs> but I think that there's sort of increasing skepticism broadly conceived about the importance of academic outcomes as measured by educational tests, right? Vis-a-vis -vis everything else that we should care about. And what I would just want to remind those people is that those academic outcomes tend to correlate with all these other things that are harder to measure. So this is sort of the tip of the iceberg, if you will, when it comes to the effects of the pandemic on our kids. And so I would just hope that we can sort of close this urgency gap, not in a way that sort of condemns this generation to like a potential lost generation, I don't want to go that far. I obviously think right. our kids, my kids, have our kids have wonderful assets, and we owe it to them to to advance their education uh, in the same way that their past generations who have made more progress, right, historically than our, our current generation is making. We owe that to them. So I, I do wonder, and I wonder what you're hearing about this, because the data are clear, but the commitment and the urgency, I think, is not what I hoped for, frankly, not because, again, I'm trying to be negative, but it's because I think we owe it to our kids to ha have the same and, frankly, better education opportunities than we ourselves had. Absolutely. And I think Shannon and I are both currently educators full-time working in schools. I'm an occupational therapist and she's a speech therapist. I also have a master's in instructional design and technology. So I do a lot of training with teachers as well. And I'll tell you one of the things I'm hearing a lot from teachers, we have third, fourth, and fifth graders that cannot read and write. And we have I would say on average in the district I'm in, which has probably nine elementary schools, I would say at third, fourth, and fifth grade, we have in each school probably about four kids that can't read and write at all yeah. in those grade yeah. levels. And it is significant for the way that they were receiving learning or not able to participate in learning during the pandemic seems to be the factor that is making that true because right. these are numbers that are higher than they were before that before right. COVID hit. right and there, there has always been unequal educational opportunity as you're saying but it's much worse than it was three years ago and that's something yeah. that i wish we had more commitment to address from our federal state local governments and from the public as a whole shannon i didn't mean to cut you off Oh, no, I was going to say I was in the same boat as you. I had a senior then in 2020, and I have a senior now. And so I'm getting to see it by, through your lens, and I would agree on that sort of small scale. So I didn't, I don't see it personally as a huge crisis, but working in the schools and hearing the trend from the 90s to the 2000s to the 2010, like, I feel like I, I wasn't aware quite, you, you made it much clearer than I had <laughs> known, I think. And so that really struck a chord in me like, oh my gosh, so it was kind of already starting, which I knew, but that just made it really clear for me, so. Yeah, there's the there's the micro and the macro. And I think that, you know, which is to exactly. say the, the personal and the sort of the, 
the national right or the or the state or the citizenship right of like of committing to education right and i think you know another reason we might not perceive it as much is for the most part that sort of slowdown in their learning happened for everyone in the neighborhood, right? Everyone in the yeah. zip code, right? And so there usually our sense of education is is referenced to the kids and the communities that we're in. And for the most part, those communities were affected relatively similar. There's a lot of inequality, as we know, um, within mm -hmm. and across different communities. But I think because that slowdown happened for everyone, there's a way in which we didn't fully appreciate the magnitude of the effects because it's not as if all of a sudden everyone, every every kid in my grade is like reading lights out and being able to you know do a higher order math. But that's actually what's happening, right? That, that's actually if you compare you know the the gen the past generation with this generation right that actually happened and we just can't perceive it because it's like the water we're swimming in right is all going moving in the same you know direction so so th that's what i sort of worry about too is that because we're so focused on you know our own neighbors we don't sort of see what we've lost and i, I think that's you know okay from the perspective of not getting depressed but it's not okay <laughs> from the perspective of of like lost opportunity to to fund and advance and support educational progress. I think too, inequity was really spotlighted during virtual learning in part from places that are rural. Shannon and I were working in Durango, Colorado. At that time, it's a mountain town with a lot of really small rural towns around it. And a lot of families had no Wi-Fi, no access. The districts weren't one-to-one. -one, so students- right got sent home and didn't have any computers to access. If you had more than one kid in your house and there was a family computer, then everybody took turns. And a lot of times students that were in higher grades had to take priority because they're closer to graduation and it feels more pertinent, right? And so elementary students, a lot of students that were anywhere from preschool through third grade, maybe it wasn't that important to the family to get them on a Zoom for 30 mm -hmm. minutes or a couple hours a day. And yet as medical providers, Shannon and I know that window of phonetic learning and how you can break words down and stuff is happening in that age group. So they came out of COVID, went into schools, into a building again and had lost some of that ability to break things down phonetically. And now they're in this neurologic window where they need to learn sort of whole words and teachers are trying to go back and teach phonetically and hitting a brick wall. So we need to look at what we lost and how we're gonna approach it. And maybe going back to the basics isn't the way. And, and part of what we're trying to cover this season is what is the way, right? And inequity mm -hmm, yeah. is definitely a problem. Is the concept of inclusion something that might help us bridge some of those inequitable situations? Is it one of the ways that maybe we can create more opportunity for kids to do some catch-up learning? And looking at these tests, we can see nationwide, there are plenty of kids who need catch-up learning. That's for sure, right? The evidence is clear that the losses are substantial and when compared to previous generations. I, I think it's interesting too to sort of think about the 
the framing around like two months of learning loss versus nine months of learning loss. There's sort of, there's sort of, which is again, sort of the difference between the 90th percentile and, and the 10th percentile, both, you know, all of these seem substantial, but there's almost a way in which, okay, well then if I misinterpret that, it means that I can catch up in two months and I can catch up in <laughs> nine months. And of course, as you know, right, the, the other cohort of kids isn't stopping Right. If we froze them in place, then we could catch up in two months and nine months. But they're, you know, accelerating and growing that that alternative parallel universe where COVID never happened. So it's going to take much, much longer than that, a much, much longer commitment than that. And so I think, too, that there's a way in which we sort of misperceive or misunderstand the magnitude of the differences that we've observed in the data. You, you talked about inclusion, and I think that's certainly something that I believe can make a difference. I think that there is a challenge that, again, relates to to increasing attention per kid in a classroom related to class size, related to teacher training, and related broadly to, to funding. And I think, you know, if we think again about the deserved federal support of education through the pandemic, uh, and the fact that there isn't that continued urgency around it is what makes me concerned that we wouldn't be able to implement more inclusive policies that that give that allow teachers, again, the training, the staffing to, to give kids that support. So I think uh, to me, a, a lot of this sort of hinges on how much we value education and how much we're willing to fund it versus other priorities. There are going to be some tough trade-offs that at all levels of government think you, there's only so much we can do to, to sort of wish or demand that teachers work more. And we shouldn't have to demand that without thinking about the supports that they are due. And uh, and that's where, again, I hope I hope we can prioritize rightfully the support of, of teachers for all the practices that you've just described. Well, in leading up to COVID, there was already, we were already seeing, looking forward, that we were going to have an educational crisis because we had less people going into education to become teachers, less students going into college and get, and taking that course of study, right? So we already knew that that was an area, a field of education is, is kind of going less and less people are following that track, right? Mm -hmm. So we were already looking at, we were going to start having a shortage of teachers. Then COVID hit and teachers that were already in play and some of them newly in play left because they got fried. <laughs> they were burned yeah. out. It was hard. It was so much. In our first season, we talked a lot about how teachers kind of found themselves in this first responder role that they hadn't been prepared for because for families, it might be the only person that they really had to connect with. And when you're not in a building where you have access to resources like food or computers that you could give to students, you're just sitting in your house listening to a family who's struggling because they can't keep their heat on or they don't have a computer. A teacher didn't know what to do with that and carried a lot of emotional just feeling of responsibility and and trying to take care of these people or watching kids be in homes that they could see through the computer like there were challenges for them right so a lot of teachers got kind of fried and burnt out and left and so now we're already short and we don't have an excess of people coming into that field it is a problem and so making teachers work more is that the solution or how do we 
incentivize people to go into education? How do we as a culture value education and teachers on a different level that makes people want to go into that field? In Finland, it is the top vocation for people in the top area of study. Here, it's not at all. And that's a problem, right? <laughs> We're going to not I, have I, teachers. I mean, I, I so you're preaching to the choir here. I mean, my yeah. mom was a teacher. My grandmother was a teacher. I'm a teacher. Like, this is why I got into this field and or this profession. And uh, it is absolutely to me something that that if you look at different countries, it's, it's shocking to me how much we put on the shoulders um, of teachers and uh, without the support, the commensurate support that they deserve. And yeah, as you, as you described, it's uh, it's something, it's one of the many things that I think we can, we can change. And I'd also just say like the pandemic has in many ways revealed to, to, I think many, how hard teachers are working and what they are due uh, in return. And so I hope we can spin this positively, if you will, and think about, yes. um, again, uh, how valuable schools are, how valuable teachers are, and to make it uh, a sustainable profession as opposed mm-hmm. to just expecting that they signed up for this impossible <laughs> task and must therefore step up in spite of the the, the difficulties um, that, again, many put on the, the, the shoulders of teachers. And you, you were in with a group of other, I'm going to say this psychometricians that well were done. looking at these NAEP scores, right? That's you right. So to- certainly the, so first there are many people who, who go, who, who help to develop the national assessment of educational progress, including those in the national center for education statistics uh, and the national assessment governing board sort of oversees the, the, the content of the assessment and the National Assessment Governing Board members are appointed by respective secretaries of education. There are also my colleagues in the research community, including Sean Reardon, Aaron Faley, Ben Shear, colleague at Harvard, Tom Kane, who have been working with the NAEP data and state testing data. Um, Sean and Aaron and Ben and I have been working for over a decade on what we call the Educational Opportunity Project. And, and you can go to edopportunity.org to, to see the plots that you were mentioning earlier that show where educational opportunity has changed most, not just from 2020 to 2022, but also from 2009 all the way to 2019, just before the pandemic. And then our more recent data shows the changes from 2019 to 2022. So that'll give you a little bit more of a a local sense, right, of the okay. effects of the pandemic on educational opportunity. And that's one way that, again, I hope we can make this more salient to people. It's one thing to talk about the nation. It's another thing to talk about your school district. Yeah. Um, and so hopefully we can make it a little bit more tangible. And hopefully also we can uh, help people to appreciate the inequality that really exists in this country around educational opportunity, both within and across districts and, and over time. So So we've been, again, trying to take the massive amount of educational testing data that we have in this country. And I and many others will argue that it's maybe overwrought, right, a bit. Um, (laughs) But suffice to say, given that the data are there, we're trying to put it to good use so that people can understand uh, changing educational opportunity and what might increase it in the future in their respective districts and schools. And with those NAEP scores, did you see with these most current NAEP scores, any regional or state based, like where it was the worst, maybe where those scores dropped the most, do you see any trends there? 
Yeah, so this is uh, something that I can't talk about just yet, but I will say my team does have a paper that's coming out in just a few weeks on this. And so my co-authors, I think, would be happy to chat with you about any immediate effects of, of what we've observed. But certainly broadly speaking, we have tended slightly on average to see greater effects in early grades and greater effects in math than reading. But the geographical differences we can talk about in a few weeks. Awesome. Well, we'll we'll make sure that we catch you in a couple of weeks really quickly to, to hear that information and tag it on to uh, this yeah. interview, because I think people will want to know that. Like you said, if it's in my neighborhood, well, then it directly applies to me and I want to know about it. So people will probably want to know that. And when you yeah, talk one, what, about, go ahead. I was going to say one factor that, that is known and my colleagues, Tom Kane and Doug Steger and Sean have actually, wait, so this paper is by Tom Kane, Dan Goldhaber and their colleagues, but they did show that where there was more remote learning, perhaps not surprisingly, right, there was less learning overall. And so that is not surprising to anyone who had to deal with the, the, the Zoom or online learning era um, is that although it may be better than nothing at all, it was not a substitute, especially in areas where there were not remote um, learning affordances. So that is something that is published and known and no surprise. And again, one of the things that we have to help energize us to, again, commit more to to remedying the, the, the losses that we've experienced. And you were talking about, and, and we all know as parents and then as educators, <laughs> anybody who's been through school, we have that standardized testing that every spring we pull our kids and they go and sit and do all the tests. And that usually starts around third grade and goes through high school. I was looking at some information that said, and this is a little bit old because it hasn't been posted post after COVID, but in, I think it was 2020, they were saying on average, the nation spends around $1.7 billion on that standardized testing for states to purchase it. And with that comes, you know, the giving it to students, pulling them out of the classroom to give them these tests, which can take hours a day multiple days. And then we have to get the scores back and the companies that provide these tests are making a lot of money. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but that is a question. I look at other nations and I see that they are only doing standardized testing, sort of like the NAEP model where you do it at specific intervals throughout the course of your education instead of annually. What are your thoughts about us doing it every stinking year? <laughs> yeah, so this is where I go back to my three W's framework, who measures what and why. So we already talked about NAEP, again, the nation's report card, who measures what and why there, right? So that's the federal government measuring math and reading and some other subjects uh, for the purpose of understanding educational progress um, over extended periods of time. The who measures what and why for the tests that you're describing as standardized. And by the way, when I, when I say standardized tests, so what does standardized mean? Standardized means comparable, right? You want those numbers to be comparable to other numbers. In the case of NAEP, you, this, the tests must be standardized because otherwise you wouldn't know if we were making progress because you couldn't compare this year's tests to past year's tests. Other standardized tests, you want to be able to compare individual student scores to other individual student scores. For example, for the purpose of selection, for the purpose of admission into specific educational programs, or for example, to college and potentially certain careers. 
there are other educational tests, right, where the who is measuring what and why, right, are, are more for what we call educational accountability. And that's what you're describing as, by and large, the state's role in the past 20 odd years in education has been to hold teachers and schools and districts and states accountable, primarily at the school and district level. But also there's some self-accountability, if you will, for the state holding itself accountable and for the federal government reporting that in a transparent way. So who measures what and why there? Again, it's sort of the state and the federal government encouraging measurement of every kid every year, right? Why? Why do we do that? Right? We already have NAEP, as you suggested, that can measure state educational progress every other year. Why do we have to measure every kid every year? What's the answer? <laughs> so, you know, I, I I can make this you know Socratic, if you will, and like, <laughs> but but so, but I I think it's actually a, a fairly important question to imagine having to answer. So you're like, wait, we're testing way too much. Why do we need to? And the answer is actually because most of us asked for it. Most of us mm -hmm. in the like 90s and 2000s were like, well, of course, we don't necessarily trust mm -hmm. the local and state and federal government to be teaching our kids well. Right? And th there's a way in which accountability right, wouldn't have to exist if we trusted. Right? Why do you hold someone accountable? Well, maybe because we might not fully trust that you're going to teach my kid right, for whom I want to receive a score well. So there is a sense in which right, all of the standardized testing right, that we are now complaining about is exactly what we're saying. You know what we need more of is accountability, right? <laughs> we need to know that my kid, like in my house right here, is learning. And the only way to do that is to test them every year and get that you know, report card that says that they've made progress, for which I can thank, right, potentially my teacher, my school, my district, my state. So that's the logic of it, right? Who measures what and why? Well, the state is measuring this because you asked them to, because we weren't fully trusting of the educational system to provide, right, for the educational opportunities of my kids. So then if you imagine, right, let's take it all away, right? So let, why do we measure? And, and why can't we just have NAEP do it? Well, NAEP isn't going to give me a score for my student. So I have to trust that the results that we're finding at the district, uh, there are only 20 or so large districts, not every district, but these 20 or so large districts and the state apply to my kid. And if I can trust right that to be the case, then yes, we could rely on NAEP. But once you start to sort of take this away, the pendulum starts to swing back to where we were in the 90s, where there was not that much trust around the fact that the state and districts would provide educational progress for all kids equally. And that's, again, where the standardized testing movement came from. So I think we are in a moment of appropriate reckoning appropriate reckoning with the three W's question, who measures what and why, right? And I hope we can, as, as a community and your podcast can help with this, ask, do we trust, right, the, the, our schools to teach and teach well? And if we're at that place, then yes, we can start to cut back. Yes, we can cut the tests in half and rely more on NAEP. But the second we do, there are going to be some people, some of your listeners, right? And, and, and some people in your communities who are going to say, wait a second, I'd actually like to know what my yeah. kid has learned. And, yeah. and I don't want that from just a teacher's report card. I don't necessarily trust sure. the teacher or the school to tell me what my kid has learned. I need some standardized, by which I mean comparable 
metric that mm-hmm. tells me what my kid is. And and again, you're listening. I'm playing a little bit of of I'm not sure if it's a devil's advocate, but it's an advocate <laughs> of views that that I know historically have existed, which is why we are where we are. Now, yeah. I think personally, right now, now I'm not playing. You know, any I'm I'm advocating for what I believe, which is we can absolutely scale back. We can absolutely scale back from what we've this this massive testing system that we've created over the past 25 years. We can absolutely scale back and still have rough right measures if we uh, for individual kids if we set our uses appropriately in a low stakes environment right to say we're not going to use these scores for high stakes classification of kids in particular programs if it's just a description like a loose description of the general skills that my kid you know is expected to know and be able to do if we can tolerate that kind of imprecision then we can absolutely cut in half the amount that you appropriately cited which is eye opening which again derives from very real skepticism about the the local and state educational systems for which we wanted hard numbers to to guarantee that our kids were getting the education that they deserve. I'm seeing in my district this year, they're implementing a new curriculum. The one that they're using is called Amplify, but I know there's multiple ones. And with these new curriculums, and this is new post-COVID that we're seeing more of this, curriculums that have testing built in that's done digitally, similar to the you know state-to-state state annual standardized testing, they have tests within the curriculum that go along the way as they hit kind of milestones of meeting standards for curriculum that students take. And I almost wonder, could that be used as some of those scores at a grade level locally, just to make sure that we are meeting those standards that need, we want to make sure are taught at certain grades or ages, and then remove some of the statewide bigger tests that we spend so much money on if we are if we already have some of that built into the curriculum. Yes, abs- so that's possible, right? So first I'd say a couple of things. First of all, those tests are not necessarily cheap either. So so the, that doesn't necessarily solve the cost issue, right? Um, they sure. also take a substantial amount of time, so it doesn't necessarily solve the time issue. So there's a way that you can see you sort of in, you know build a better mousetrap, if you will. You're like, well, what if we just had all these other assessments combined? And then you're like, well, wait, how much do those cost? And how much time do they take, right? And so you end up sort of building a better mousetrap. The, the real threat to, to that model, which I actually think is uh, compelling, but the real threat to that model model is comparability right and that's another word for standardization right or standardized tests right is that all these different products assessments from these different vendors are not necessarily comparable so you have some districts doing some things and other districts doing other things and who knows who's grading what and why and how and as the stakes on these scores rise so too must the comparability in other words the standardization and that's why these tests end up costing so much so there tends to be a circularity around the the arguments to our pendulum swing, if you will, to the arguments around standardized testing. And I actually think we are moving in a productive direction because people like we can be clear about the trade-offs, right? As you know, again, when you want to cut back on testing, you are also 
endorsing, right, or trusting the system to be teaching kids well. And perhaps they have earned it, right? There are some schools and districts for whom the results are probably going to be fine, right? And and there are yeah. others for whom we can tell from other data just as easily, right, that they need support. So maybe, right, we don't need the test scores because they're so strongly correlated with other measures, including, for example, socioeconomic measures, which will already tell us that our kids, those kids need support. So there are many, many ways to, I think, improve the system. I want to be cautious of of the, again, district-oriented or district-controlled assessments because of the varying quality of those of those assessments and the varying costs uh, and the lack of comparability from district to district that might allow or prevent a state from really seeing who needs help. So I think that's those are the challenges. They're well-established challenges in the psychomagic or the psychometric literature, I should say, mm-hmm. but they're well-established challenges. But I hope that I and my colleagues are at least making the trade-offs more clear, right? And again, like let let's let's revisit this, uh, or let's let me emphasize that I absolutely believe we can cut back. It is with the pendulum swung way too far in the direction of over-testing, and I think we can right-size. We just have to be clear what the trade-offs are. When I was looking at some information worldwide about how we look at educational systems as well as academic scores. There's a measure of testing loosely called the PISA testing. And I was reading about what they actually test in that. And a lot of the questions, the way that the author was describing it, said that they are more problem solving skills, real world skills about, you know, looking at math from an actual problem. Maybe it's trying to financially cover certain things or whatever. The United States has not broken through into the top 10 there. And this is supposed to be sort of logic problem solving skills. Is that really different than how we test here in the United States? Is that maybe part of the problem why our students aren't testing high? No, I, I, so there are two large international assessment programs. One's called TIMS, the other is called PISA. PISA does tend to have questions that are a little bit more like you know cognitive tasks whereas tims tends to be a little bit more like i guess the curriculum that tends to exist in most most other countries the the rankings are not substantially different between tims and pisa so i, I and and this is, tends to be true generally speaking that no matter what you measure the rankings tend to be frustratingly consistent which is to say that broadly conceived educational opportunity is correlated with other educational opportunities so i think the fact that the United States doesn't rank highly is because we aren't providing as much educational opportunities as some of the other countries uh, on on that ranking table. And, you know, we, of course, know that from, you know, our, I guess I would I would ch- take it all the way back, support for early childhood education and, and parental leaves. And, you know, again, educational opportunity is far more than just what we have in K-12 schooling systems. Uh, and it should come as no surprise, given the review of the countries there and how they support child rearing broadly conceived, that we don't rank in the top 10. Good points. That's a really good point. <laughs> we uh, we do have an interview coming later in our season with uh, Dr. Pasi Salberg, who was in Finnish Ministry of Education, has written a lot of books, has done a ton of research and working with these worldwide testing. And he's got some really interesting concepts about why he thinks 
Finland was able to turn things around. And I'm reading one of his books and it's really interesting and it touches on the things you just said. And I thought that was really powerful because I think in the United States, sometimes we don't realize like, we just are like, yay, we're the best. Are we? I don't know. I think right now we could say, yay, we need to change some things. That's right. You should know that that Posse was a colleague of mine at the Graduate School of Education, oh, and so good. you can send him my regards. Yeah. Oh, I will, oh, for sure. That's awesome. That is great. I know that you took time out to talk with us today. I really appreciate you giving us this time. I think this is something that a lot of people sort of skim over because, you know, numbers and statistics and oh, I'm busy, right? I don't want to look at it. But it's so important for us to get a foundation of understanding where we are and maybe where some of the gaps are, because even though we're pointing out the gaps, we're pointing out unstable ground, we're doing that because we wanna build on it with positivity that we can make these changes. And if the pendulum has swung too far, we can still grab that and bring it back and find balance and, and get better. And I think we owe it, whether you have students in the education system or you are a student or you are an educator or you're not, maybe you're a politician, you're just a citizen, the truth is all of these kids that are in school now are going to be the leaders of tomorrow. We need to pay attention to this because when I retire, <laughs> I don't want to be afraid. <laughs> <laughs> Same with me, Holly. I agree. Thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate it. And we really appreciate all the information you brought and the way that you laid it out, because I think it will help listeners to really better understand it. And we're going to touch base with you in a few weeks and find out from you that information about regional and state information on the testing. Shannon, Great. any final yeah. thoughts? Thank you so much. I really oh, appreciate it. Was my pleasure. It. I, I, yeah. I enjoyed the conversation. Yeah, for for um, for that later paper, I may refer you to my colleague Sean Reardon and Aaron okay. Faley and and Ben Shear because they're the ones leading the work on that paper. I'm I'm supporting okay. that work, but um, they should be the ones who to, who speak to you about it. So I may forward them awesome. to you. But that's just an opportunity for another voice. So that would probably be a good yeah. thing anyway. We would love Wonderful. it. Great. Awesome. Well, have a great day. Thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Uh, best of luck with the podcast. Let me know when it posts and uh, best of I luck will. with your um, season. Thank you. Right, Shannon, unrecord us. I'm going to stop right now. All right. I think it's really important that we remind people that he said two to nine months of learning was lost during remote learning and COVID on average, and that this is actually urgent for us to pay attention to because it's a significant, statistically significant gap. Um, the other important thing was teaching is a really hard job. Supporting teachers is key for changes and educating our community and our students. Absolutely. I think as a culture, and one of the reasons we even started this podcast was that we were experiencing that working with educators in school environments that teachers were feeling so underappreciated and overwhelmed. And we wanted to make sure that we elevated education and teaching in our culture. And there are other countries that are doing that. In Finland, one of the top three jobs and and career paths that people take going to university are education. How do we make that true here in the United States? That could be important. That would be amazing. Amazing. And I also want to point out, we talked about, and I, I thought it was powerful that he was willing to talk about the annual standardized testing that we do, pulling kids out of classrooms for a couple hours for multiple days over 
three to four weeks for some districts, the learning they're missing, the stress that they have, how it breaks up the flow for educators. Why are we doing that? It's a lot of time. It's a lot of time. And we only do it because? Well, it turns out we didn't, I didn't realize this. I didn't think of this, but it's because people don't trust that their students are being educated appropriately. Right. So it's parents, it's a community as a whole. It's the nation who isn't trusting. And we spend millions, billions of dollars nationwide on this. Could we put that money back into schools? Possibly. I mean, other countries have one or two pivotal times in the education process that they give a standardized test just to see that kids are on track. Could we scale back to that and let the NAEP tests fill in those gaps over the years? There's possibilities. That's a good question. Yeah. And I think it's something that the American public has to really consider and look at. And the government needs to get involved with helping us make these changes across the board so that we can see positive movement going upward again instead of losing ground. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right, guys. I thought that was a great interview, something that could have been really dry and boring. I felt like Dr. Ho really made it fun and he was very pleasant to interview. We hope he comes back and we will do a follow-up and give you that statistical information that he said was going to be published here in a few weeks. We will get that to you in one of the other episodes so that you can just catch up with that and we'll let you know when that's coming out. All right, together Together, we we can do do better. better. All right, guys, we'll see you next time for a great interview with Dr. James Robinson and how to make inclusive practices happen in your school or district. See you next time. Bye.